This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, Australia prides itself on its compulsory voting. The fact that a bigger proportion of citizens here are actively involved in the democratic process, things like elections, than other developed countries. The thing is, though, not all parts of our community are having their voices heard, and now there are demands for that to change. In a bit, you're going to hear about the plan to get more First Nations Australians eligible to vote in the Voice to Parliament referendum. Also coming up, we got a really, really nice story about an incredible group of young people who saw a big problem with accessibility to health information in Australia, and they decided to do something about it. Stay listening for that one. First, though. Hack. The pace and scale of current plans are insufficient to tackle climate change. On Triple J. Oh, how many warnings is the world going to get about climate change? How many have you heard in your lifetime? Actually, how many have you heard in just the last few months? Because there was another big one that was made today, and it's being called a handbook to save humanity. It's hard to imagine how much more dramatic they can make this language. The good news is it has offered hope. It says we do still have time and resources to sort stuff out. But this report from the United Nations climate change body is the last report that they're publishing before 2030. And we know that's a year that experts say marks a big turning point in the fight against climate change. So what is in this report? April McLennan's been finding out. There's a ticking time bomb in front of you. If it explodes, it's going to kill everyone on Earth. How do you defuse it? Are you going to cut the red or blue wire? Your hands are shaking. Beads of sweat start to run down your forehead. The fate of humanity relies on you. Then someone passes you a handbook on how to defuse the bomb. It tells you exactly which wire to cut. Do you follow the instructions and save everyone? Or do you throw it away? The climate time bomb is ticking. But today's IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. Okay, so we're not actually talking about a real bomb. It's just a super grim warning from UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres at a meeting of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, which this week released its final synthesis report. So basically, this report gets huge amounts of data and information about climate change and dumbs it down so policymakers inside and outside government can use it. The report said more than 3 billion people are living in places highly vulnerable to the effects of climate change. And Antonio says the latest report should be seen as a survival guide for humanity. Humanity is on thin ice and that ice is melting fast. Humans are responsible for virtually all global heating over the last 200 years. Professor Leslie Hughes, former IPCC contributor, reckons the report highlights that the window of opportunity to make sure the planet is livable into the future is closing. We really need to at least reduce global emissions by 50%, preferably more than that by 2030. So this really is the critical decade for action. Antonio has a pretty stark message for developed countries. They've got to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2035, and there must be no new coal, gas or oil projects if the earth is to have a chance. It's a warning which comes as the government tries to get its safeguard mechanism over the line. 
which is a central component of its climate change policy and needs to pass parliament, and Labor doesn't hold a majority in the Senate, so they've got to work with others to get it through. But the Coalition are against it, and so are the Greens, but only because they think it doesn't go far enough. Leader of the Greens, Adam Bant, says they want the government to commit to ending new coal and gas projects. We want to vote for laws that will see coal and gas pollution come down in this country, not go up, because you can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. But it's not all bad. Scientists reckon there's still time to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And the report says solar and wind energy, improved forest management, urban greening and reduced food waste is all technically viable and they're becoming cheaper and more popular. This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. In short, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. The next version of this report won't be released until about 2030, leaving this report to be our final warning this decade. Hack on Triple J. April McLennan with that update on the text line. Someone says, I can't wait for the government to ignore every recommendation that comes from this. Okay, people feeling pretty pessimistic about the whole thing. You can imagine why. We do like to chat to experts about this. We've spoken a lot to politicians actually lately. So let's talk to someone who researches this, a climate scientist. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick is an expert in climate extremes. She's with UNSW. She's with us now. Hey, Sarah, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. A lot of our listeners are going to be probably pretty tired hearing um, these same warnings, not seeing a whole lot of action. Maybe they're feeling uh, a, a bit depressed about the situation. Was there anything in this latest report that filled you with a bit of hope? Look, I'm going to be honest, not a whole lot, but there are a few a few good messages, if you will. So there are quite a number of countries, or 18 in total, that have started to see a reduction in their greenhouse gas emissions for the last decade. So they've put mechanisms in place to make those reductions possible. So that tells us it is possible for us to do. Uh, on top of that, climate scientists like myself no longer talk about the worst case future projection scenario as the most likely. It's still not a great scenario that's the most likely, which is about warming between 2.5 to 2.8 degrees Celsius, but it's certainly not as bad as what we used to use as our business as usual worst case situation. So that, that I guess, the main sort of slightly good news stories that come out of this, this report, oh, and as well as the fact that we now have the technology that's equally as affordable as fossil fuels to actually come off that fossil fuel addiction. So things like solar power, electric vehicles, other sources of renewable energy, they're there, they're up for the taking. We've just got to scale them out to everybody. You've been across this for a number of years, Sarah. Have you seen big changes in just the last few years in terms of how these greener technologies are more accessible, more free? available? There are certainly uh, certainly signs that they are becoming more freely available, but probably or definitely not at the speed of that sh as, as that should be happening, particularly in a country like Australia. So, for example, electric vehicles are more readily available. They are more affordable to some Australians, but not really to everyone. Things like uh, renewable energy, such as rooftop solar, once again, that is more affordable, 
But once again, not everyone can afford it. Whereas if you look at some countries, for example, Germany and other European nations, these things were put in place, you know, decades ago, and that, that's where they're seeing the, the greatest reduction in emissions. So the technology is there. It's now hugely competitive with fossil fuels. But in most countries, and especially Australia, we simply haven't scaled them up to the level that we need to to really make a big difference. Sarah, is it worrying that the IPCC, which is the UN's climate change body, is not doing another one of these reports until the year 2030? Like, I'm just wondering, do you think that makes the risk of countries losing focus without these constant reminders? I, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, it's, this is a hard situation to be in, right? I mean, if we had a report after report after report every year, and this is what we've had. We've had every report saying, this is bad. This is really bad. We really need to do something about it. People get fatigued, I think. Like, governments are used to hearing this. People are used to hearing this. I'm not. This is not to take away the, you know, serious importance of this work. It is so fundamental and so integral that these reports are made. But we also need time to you know, to to let these reports sink in, to let countries make the changes that they need to, need to make and hold true to their Paris 2015 pledges. And as well as scientists like myself to go back, do more research, add to the body of literature and reassess in about six or seven years' time. That's usually how the IPCC um, cycle works and that's why that mechanism is in place. Okay. We've spoken a lot about Australia's response to climate change over the years here on Hack. Even last week we had the climate change minister on, but obviously it's not just us. There's the whole world to consider, which is what these reports have been doing. Just to remind us, who are the big polluters? Because it's obviously not just Australia, it's the whole world we're worried about. So which are the countries that do? need to be taking action? Look, it depends how you look at it. So you do have countries that are the biggest emitters simply because of their population sizes. So that's like India and China. But then you also have countries that are the biggest emitters per capita, where each person chews through greenhouse gases much much more so than, say, a developing nation or a country where they have good measures to keep their carbon emissions in check. And that's places like America and Australia. We really chew through our greenhouse gases per capita. Um, and, that, you know, both in terms of the countries that burn fossil fuels because of their population and the ones per ca- uh, that have the highest emissions per capita, that's the countries that we really need to target. As you said, this is a global effort. This is not up to one country. It's not even up to a handful of countries. And on top of that, we can't simply wait until other countries start you know, the, the climate action movement for us to all get on the bandwagon. We all needed to be on this ba- bandwagon 30 years ago and now it's come to the situation where we all must do it imminently. And do you think there does need to be like a lot of scrutiny as well of developing countries to make sure that they're also reducing their emissions as much as they can and, and developed countries are helping them get there? I think that we have a moral responsibility to help developing nations do the best that they can. Now, in, in this report, it does state that the the time frame for developing nations to make their changes and to come off fossil fuels is about a decade longer than developed nations. And that's to give them the chance to implement the technologies that hopefully developed nations can give them and, and help them put in place. And to be honest, I actually think that's fair, if not, you know, in some ways, to have, they should be given even longer because they don't emit nearly as much as we do or countries with big populations. And on top of that, they don't, haven't caused these problems yet. They're the ones that are going to, that are going to feel the impacts the most. So I think it's fair that they get a little bit longer, a bit more of a reprieve to put these mechanisms in place. But on top of that, we need to help them. We cause this problem. We need to help them adapt. 
And Sarah, how hopeful are you as we head towards 2030? Because that seems to be like the main kind of uh, deadline at the moment. Like you people used to talk a lot more about 2050. Now it is 2030. You've been one of the younger climate scientists, experts over the years. When you look decades down the track, where do you think we're going to be? Yeah, look, this is a really tricky one because if I'm brutally honest, I'm not hopeful at all for the next decade or so. So, I, you know, I, I graduated from my PhD about 15 years ago and I thought we'd be in a lot of a, a much different situation than what we're in now. I didn't think we'd be having these conversations because I did think governments will get it together, everyone will get it together and a 1.5 degree world would be very feasible. Now, we do have the tools. Uh, we know what's coming and, and we can do it because we do have the right the right ways to reduce our carbon emissions, but it's simply not at the scale. So I would say that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, even if we do overshoot that and then take carbon out of the atmosphere to bring warming back to that level, it's not imp- impossible, but it's highly improbable in my book. I actually see a world where global warming will reach somewhere between 2.5 to 3 degrees Celsius. And that's simply based on what governments are doing now, their pledges that they're currently seeing through, and the fact that even countries like ourselves are you know, looking into new coal, new coal and new gas uh, projects. That doesn't give me much hope that they're taking this as seriously as they should. Well, Sarah, I hope you don't take offence to this, but we're all hoping you are dead wrong about that, so obviously. Am I. So yeah. am I, believe me. <laughs> and listen, I'm sure we'll be talking in the years ahead about how all this is going. We really appreciate your insight. Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick from UNSW, thanks for coming on Hack. My pleasure, anytime. Hack on Triple J. And someone on the text line says, I'm really concerned for the planet, but no one's talking about the fact that China's building two new coal-powered stations per week. How can the Earth survive this? What we do in Australia is comparatively small. And yeah, it's about that discussion globally, as we are just saying with Sarah. Um, it is easy to, you know, focus on just what we're doing, which we have been doing for a while, but... It's a whole-of-world problem. Hack. It's the job of this government to make sure voting is as easy as possible for everyone. On Triple J. Did you know thousands of Aussies, including a significant number of First Nations Australians, are not eligible to vote in the upcoming Voice to Parliament referendum? Incarcerated people serving sentences of more than three years can't vote in referendums. Depending on which state or territory you live in, the rules are different for state and local government elections. But remember, close to a third of all prisoners in Australia are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Now, this week, the Senate's going to be looking at making changes to make sure all First Nations people are able to vote in the referendum, but not all politicians back those changes. And it started this chat about Indigenous enrolment rates more broadly and why they're so far behind the overall enrolment rate in Australia. Get Up is one of the groups trying to raise awareness about this. Widgeable, weeable woman Larissa Baldwin Roberts is the chief executive of Get Up and she's with me now. Hey Larissa, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. How important is it that Australia focuses on getting more First Nations people across the board to participate in elections? So we have, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, reform people are talking about for the referendum act and coming, but our movement Get Up has been campaigning for decades uh, about how we create more participation in our elections, in our democratic processes. We believe that the power really should be with the people and so the ability for people to vote, you know, wasn't even the week after the election that Anthony Albanese came out and said, 
uh, as the new Prime Minister, that there's widespread voter suppression happening across this country. And I think people think that that's something that happens in the United States, but it happens in a lot of ways in Australia. And there has been lots of scaremongering over many decades around how we reform voters and um, voting uh, ability and, and, and voting ID and all this sort of stuff coming in from the conservative side of politics. But what does that all mean and how do you kind of push back against that and making sure that if you're on the rolls, you have the right to remain on the rolls and understanding what it means uh, to be able to not just cast your vote, but be counted as a citizen of this country as well. Well, I guess, yeah, the people, when we talk about voting and compulsory voting, often the number that's thrown around is, you know, 97% of Australians are enrolled to vote. Um, it's something that people are pretty proud of generally because they compare it to other countries overseas, maybe like the US. But specifically when it comes to First Nations people, it's a lot lower than that, right? Yeah, it's significantly lower. There is a large portion of our voting population that is missing from the rolls. And maybe this is partly people don't feel like governments represent them. We definitely hear that when we're out in communities talking about getting involved in elections and, you know, why should we even bother this? People don't care about us and, and stuff like that. There's lots of that. But also there are incredible barriers to voting. So things like going out into northern Australia, we have lots of remote and even big regional centres of large First Nations population, a lot of these people can speak English as a third, fourth, fifth language, many other languages before English. And so when you think about going to cast your formally, how to do that, you go there, you see the electoral officer, they tell you how to do it. They can only tell us in the language that is under legislation to be translated into. So all First Nations languages are not acceptable forms of um, translation that is available for the electoral um, officers. So there are huge language barriers and that is just like one barrier that people um, experience in communities around understanding how to vote but also who to vote for. Like you might see in major cities there's like bunting in and around your local school, there's the sausages. You know, in the two weeks in the lead up to the election we see in remote communities and more regional areas, you can have a polling booth two weeks before the federal election that shows up in your community for half an hour. So how do you know when they're coming? There's no notice and that sort of stuff. So even if you want to vote, how are you able to cast your vote for the pe person that you want to elect or maybe cast the protest vote and kick the person out that you don't think is representing you well enough? I mean, a lot of people would be reading the news today and maybe surprised to hear that specifically when we talk about people in jail, inmates, that some people in jail are not eligible to vote in elections or referenda or stuff like that. What kind of reforms do you want to be seeing there? Actually, I think it's like not just people in jails, right? People who are incarcerated or held in health facility could be rehab facilitation, mental health facilities. There's lots of different um, places where people are, you know, housed within or like incarcerated within who aren't able to access the polls. They don't have electoral officers coming into these types of places. We firstly believe that it doesn't matter, you know, what you've, in terms of crimes and that sort of stuff committed, People should be able to be represented in in terms of elect the people that are representing them. And I think it's really important when we talk about, you know, more targeted, vulnerable populations. We talk about First Nations people. A lot of our people are, you know, we have a higher percentage of people that are incarcerated, but a significant amount of those people are on remand. So they're actually not charged for a crime. They could be there for things like unpaid fines or, you know, if you're looking at young people that have, you know, are homeless, have a history of... Um, you know, being in and out of, you know, the state care system and stuff like that, they can be remanded in prison. 
there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to vote but our electoral laws did not allow them to cast a vote. And so we've, you know, over the years tried to do legal challenges and those types of things, but we do believe that people who are incarcerated or who are in these different institutions and facilities should absolutely have a right uh, to understand, like, imagine how the different carceral systems and, and the reforms that we would have if these type of people actually voted. Uh, what would your candidate say about the types of things that they would be proposing if they had to go out to the voting population? We do have some politicians out there, um, particularly today, who've been saying they don't support this Greens proposal to allow First Nations Australians who may be behind bars to vote in the upcoming referendum on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. What would be your response to that? We are a minority in this country and I think the referendum, regardless of what the question says, this is a referendum about us. And we say as First Nations people, like, nothing about us without us. And that means that I believe every person who is of voting age as a First Nations person should absolutely be able to vote around what their intention is within this referendum and have their voice heard. This is a significant piece of legislation that is going to be uh, a piece of reform that is going to come through. It's not going to solve everything, but in the ways that we are talking about it, I just you'd think that the Labor government would be pulling out all stops to make sure First Nations people, you know, could be, take part in this referendum. People talk all the time about the 67 referendum, you know, the right to be counted in the census. Every single referendum in this country has rolled by without First Nations people, and this one is about us significantly, and we should have the right to vote. So, you know, I think it's, it's terrible that they're saying these things. I believe that we should, you know, I believe in lots of things, like we should reduce the voting age. I think that, you know, you look at all the people out there as, 15, 16, 17 year olds, I think they, they should vote for our future. I don't think it should be held within one class or a, um, you know, voting demographic. I think everybody has a stake to play in terms of what our future is. And so making more people, like more people is more democracy. So I believe that they, you know, they're making the wrong decision and they should support these amendments. All right. Larissa Baldwin-Roberts from Get Up. Thanks very much for joining us on Hack. Hack on Triple J. And a lot of mixed opinions on this one. A lot of people just not um, aware of these rules around voting and, you know, being incarcerated and sometimes not having that uh, ability to vote. Other people saying, you know, if you're in jail, you have no right to vote. Time to move on. Hack. We have like a hesitance in the POC community about like going for these checks. Everyone deserves to be on top of their health. On Triple J. So a fifth of us in Australia speak a language other than English at home. For some, English is their second, third or fourth language, including a lot of young Aussies. And you can imagine if you're from a migrant or refugee background, it can be really hard accessing the right information about stuff like mental health, um, sexual health, even just general health checks. But a group of young people from all different backgrounds are trying to change this. They've got together to create health resources in different languages and help those who need it. Kimberly Price explains. Take yourself back to the starting days of the COVID pandemic. Your pantry is stocked up with tinned food. You're watching normal people awkwardly with your housemates or family. You've started baking banana bread and every day at 11am, you turn on your state government's press conference with the chief health officer to hear the latest. The anxiety is right back there with you, isn't it? But what if English wasn't your first language? What if you didn't understand where to get your vaccine from or the new words slipping into our vocab like asymptomatic, flatten the curve or incubation period? Life would have been pretty tough, right? There are some um, miscommunications around getting help. Meet Charlene. 
She is part of a team who have made social media posts and online guides about a range of health resources to make life a bit easier for culturally and linguistically diverse people, which we're going to call cold for the rest of this story. And Charlene says it's quite common for the cold community to get confused about accessing healthcare. I have a Chinese friend who came to me telling me that the psychologist that he found um, would charge like 500. China is very different. Charlene helped create the mental health resources after going through her own battles. With my life experience, I just feel very deeply about people with mental problems, no matter it's disorder or any mental health issues, and I just want to help. The online health directory was created with the Youth Affairs Council of Victoria and lists multicultural health services and shares advice on how non-English speakers can advocate for themselves. There are also social media posts backing up this directory and gives tips on how people can help their own mental health. Hanina joined the sexual health team to debunk taboos and help people overcome cultural differences. Someone actually experienced a urinary tract or yeast infection um, in their family, but then they just put off and avoid seeing any health professionals because they are just in fear of what um, the doctors might do or like what process they need to go through. In Hanina's experience, sexual health conversations are pretty different in cold communities. But with the posts, she hopes young people can find their answers. Rather than actually them finding it out online through like unverified sources, why not we cater it specifically like from what we think is safer for them? Studies suggest young people don't go to the doctor for routine checkups. The Youth Affairs Council of Victoria found there isn't much data around health outcomes of young people from migrant and refugee backgrounds. What I was interested in was like empowering young voices because we don't really see young people like us in positions of power. Meet Sophia. She joined the program as part of the skin cancer prevention team because she says there's not much awareness about what skin changes to get checked for for people of colour. It looks different on coloured skin. We have like a hesitance in like the POIC community about like going for these checks and I feel like everyone deserves to be on top of their health. The three girls agreed that miscommunication can also be a massive health barrier and Sophia says translations aren't 100% reliable. You need like several different languages to cater to a lot of different minority groups. So the fact that we mostly just have English means it has to be translated by someone else. You're relying on a messenger. You don't get the information directly. For Hanina and Sophia, it's important that their healthcare system reflects them. The healthcare system should definitely um, put more resources in a lot of like different language and accessibility. We're a very multicultural society. It'll be great to have that reflected in all areas. And above all, they're proud to see their resources available on social media platforms and online. I put something out in public that um, people, after they see, they might change their perception about mental health and maybe more willing to get help. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with that story. I want to get into it a bit more now. I've got with me Muhammad Al-Khafaji, the CEO of the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia. Hey, Muhammad, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Hey, thanks for having me. Do you think we do have a, a lot of work to do to make more health information in different languages easily available in Australia? We have so much more work to do um, in the multicultural health space. And I think the pandemic has really shown us um, how fragile the whole health system is, especially for um, people who 
uh, are not from the mainstream communities, if I can put it that way, given that Australia is a one of the most multicultural countries in the world. So I think, um, you know, we'd love to say that we're the most successful multicultural nation, but when it comes to practical things like ensuring um, key uh, critical messages from governments are translated correctly uh, and delivered to community members through trusted messengers, um, we have a lot more work and catch up to do. And I mean, Mohammed, you speak to a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. Do you think that cultural and language differences are creating barriers for young people getting healthcare? Like, does it sometimes stop young people from seeking out the help they need? I think uh, policies and programs need to be a lot more culturally appropriate. And I think whoever's designing these programs needs to ensure they understand the cultural nuances that many people from uh, multicultural backgrounds face, especially young people who are wedged in this um, uh, kind of sandwich of culture versus, you know, growing up here in Australia. There are two conflicting um, forces, you know, uh, and I think young people from multicultural backgrounds are really trying to um, walk a very narrow path, ensuring that they uh, are respectful to their culture, but also ensure that they have um, very important critical um, and sometimes taboo uh, subjects that, uh, for example, sexual health, um, uh, getting information uh, from trusted sources. So uh, governments and policymakers need to do a lot more in that area. Yeah, and I guess um, the real risk here, Mohammed, is if people aren't seeking professional advice, they're looking for their own, they're turning to maybe unreliable sources like the internet. Look, there's so much to unpack here, so much to discuss. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but we appreciate yours. Mohammed Al-Khafaji from the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia. Happy Harmony Week and thanks so much for joining us on Hack. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.